0: Bravo. Hola. Hello.
1: Hello. hello, and welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with policy voices from around the world. Policy voices talking policy choices. Hi, you're listening to Policy Voices, a new podcast by Friends of Europe. I'm Katarina Villanova, podcast producer at Friends of Europe, and I'm very excited to introduce you to this first episode. It is a special one. We bring you a wonderful conversation between Nina Rawal, partner and co-head at Trill Impact Ventures, Europe's leading impact investing house, and Ricard Batista Leite, CEO of Health AI, the global agency for responsible AI in health. Nina and Ricardo are both European young leaders and have known each other for a while now. We asked them to sit together before Friends of Europe's European Health Summit that happened earlier this month to talk about Ricardo's new job, or third life as he calls it, and the potentials of artificial intelligence in health. So don't go anywhere and enjoy this conversation that I promise ends with a sign of hope. Canada nice to see you it's been a while um and I'm thinking about you know how we had a active exchange during the the pandemic also it was a really interesting time I've thought back at that a lot like the activity in the EYL European Young Leader Group uh during the pandemic and like the the worries and the conclusions and all of it it's um it's a really interesting group that way. It's quite unique.
0: Yeah, so it's it's very fortunate we could uh, get together yeah. uh, as a group, and you felt that, particularly in times of crisis, the European young leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, is more than just a debate group, I would say. The, that's the name Friends of Europe. But um, in that friendship leads then to potential projects, mm-hmm. ideas. I've learned a lot from many of our colleagues, yeah. And it's been several years now, and I'm very happy we can mm-hmm. get together.
1: <laughs> so what's your best European Young Leader memory?
0: Oh, well, I would say, although it's, um, it's very much focused on my hometown, but uh, when I was able to organize a <laughs> seminar for the European Young mm-hmm. Leader Group, um, Back home in Portugal, mm-hmm. I've already done it twice, but the first time was mm-hmm. a special one, I must say, and it worked because it was divided between Lisbon and Cascais, mm-hmm. where I live, and um everybody was just so happy. Yeah. And uh, you know, I feel it was before the pandemic. Sustainable development goals had just yeah. been approved. I don't know. It was a time of hope, and then chaos fell upon yeah. us with the pandemic and all of the challenges. And the rise of extremism that we're seeing across Europe and the world, the wars, and so many fronts. I mean, right now, looking back at that, it's a, it, it seemed like a moment of hope that I hope we can get back because you need hope to,
1: to build the future. Absolutely. And I think we're going to get to the AI discussion, but I, I'll share with you my best memory, which is to the point that EYL is also friendship, right? There's so much, I have to say, Like compared to other networks, I think there's so much content knowledge in this group. And like you say, you can really learn from each other, but it also really develop friendships. And I think about my first seminar, we were in Greece at the time of the, mm. the Euro crisis. And it was so interesting by day with, you know, like the, the Greek ministers coming in and taking the time to talk to us, but also then at night having a lot of, in this group (laughs) and I just some of these memories from like the the fun part really stay with me yeah I will keep it off of the podcast (laughs) but just to say that there's a lot of fun there and actually just last week I was in Barcelona and I met with Jorge Juan who's also of course in the in the health field so like that that balance still of like um, deep respect on the professional level, but also having some fun that forges the, the relationships and the friendships. Did
0: you feel that in any way it influenced your career?
1: For sure. It was the first, it wasn't the first, but it was really that glimpse. I mean, we were so young back then. Uh, I'm, you know, we're old timers, but really this feeling of agency, I would say this feeling of, that, you know, the cliche, but still like, wow, I I, I really have a voice and to, to try to change. And I think I hadn't thought that through uh, before. And th- that's, that was really the power of the Athens Seminar, like in the in a, in a the middle of this crisis in Greece, and we're there. And I think, it, if I'm not mistaken, it was the minister of foreign affairs who took the time to sit with us. And he was supposed to, I had a friend working with him on the Greek side, so I knew that he was supposed to be there for, say, 15, 20 minutes, and he stayed for more than an hour. And that was really interesting to see also kind of the, the power of this group. And and so I think it definitely started to shape my thinking of how the the opportunity, but almost also like the obligation that if you're you're invited to these groups, you know, how can you use that to really in your own way uh, do the best you can? It doesn't mean we all dive into politics or whatever you know we're doing, but really in our own a sphere. How can we we think about Europe?
0: Absolutely. And you you do reinforce your identity beyond Mm -hmm. your national identity.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. And I think it's been one of these conversations we also had in this group before around, you know, do identify as European first or can the nationality come from first? And I think we are the fortunate ones that move a lot across countries, but nevertheless, that very strong European identity and kind of the the, the shared opportunity of, of being European. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. So you've taken on a new job. <laughs> yes. uh, tell us about it.
0: So in a way, it's my third life, as I call it, because um, I spent about eight years working as a physician in infectious disease, and I was in politics, mm-hmm. precisely. I was elected at the time into parliament at the Troika at the time, mm-hmm when Portugal was bailed out, very difficult time. I ended up being elected for four terms in parliament. In between, I was deputy mayor uh, in my hometown. And um, having done my academic path throughout that time, after 12 years of active politics, I felt that the moment was right to engage on another activity where I could grow professionally. Also because um, I also feel even when we are politically engaged, We have to challenge ourselves not to get too comfortable and learn more and put ourselves in situations where we can contribute, but also grow personally and professionally. I never wanted to be one of those 30-year
1: members of parliament. Life first. Life for life.
0: I respect those. It's just not for me. And so when this opportunity came at the time to become the CEO of IDeR, International Digital Health and Artificial Intelligence Research Collaborative, which is a nonprofit foundation based in Geneva. I thought it was quite interesting precisely because of the rise of AI at that moment, and also because of the need for reform comes to health systems. The truth is the idea of transforming disease-driven models towards models that focus on creating ecosystems that lead to health, well-being, and quality of life is one that demands data, it demands technology. And I feel that we've reached a moment where we have the computational capacity uh, so, that technology can help us leverage that transformation. And so, I, I went through that process. I ended up being chosen after their the global search process for the new CEO. And over the first 100 days, I, uh, I'm on the job about 120 days now. Uh, the first 100 days were focused on getting a new strategy, which led to a new name for the organization. And so, now we are Health AI the Global Agency for Responsible AI in Health. And uh, our new strategy has redirected us to be focused on responsible AI or trustworthy AI, ethically, ethical use of AI, if you will, applied vertically in the health sector, which is a high-risk area. And the reason why we did this transformation was after doing a needs assessment and a market assessment, it became very clear that governments, citizens alike, are fearing the impact of AI, don't understand much of it, and especially don't know how to address This challenge, which has tremendous potential, but if you let fear take over governments, well, they will block the way to innovation and to using that potential, to harnessing that potential for good. And so Health AI is focused precisely on helping governments and regional bodies to build the regulatory capacity to assess... A safe, effective, quality tools and AI for health, monitor its impact and create a global network of regulatory bodies that on one hand ensure patient safety, ensure that these technologies lead to better health outcomes, but on the other hand, don't hinder investment and in innovation and actually create new markets and pathways so that developers, private companies invest and have access to, to citizens and making sure that access is made in an equitable way. Not just here in Europe, but with a global, global mindset, so that we can learn from many of the mistakes mm-hmm. we've made in the past, where we have clearly divided the world between the poor and the rich.
1: Can we talk a little about love? Here, kind of, you know, I sit on the investing side. We invest in in startups leveraging AI. It's all over. It is here, right? And and we see. Love to talk about for everyone who isn't in AI and health. Let's talk about kind of the opportunities of what it brings. Also, love to explore as you talk about kind of the ethics and and the challenges, but I'd love to start with how you think about the public side of things, you know, because I think I I would assume at least that many think of AI as like all the opportunities for for companies to, you know, create new ideas and and make products and monetize them in various ways. But you, you started talking about kind of the role of government and public sector. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think a pushback in the health sector would be to say, you know, AI is next the next frontier, but we've been dealing with big data for a long time. And uh, the conversation in the sector is very much to say, yes, there is already so much data out there, but we still haven't figured out how to share that data in in an ethical yet kind of attractive way for people to make use of that data for, 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 the be, for the benefit of patients. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. how you think about that?
0: Well, the way we see this is by building what we call mechanisms, which, in other words, means teams of people within the regulatory agencies, like the Medicine Regulatory yeah. Agency, we can actually build that expertise not only to validate AI tools, but actually provide the proficiency needed precisely in terms of data management. So one of the big issues is how do you convince private companies to be willing to open up their black boxes so we can look into their data sets, into their tra- and training models, into their algorithm? And if you create a model through which you give access to market, but also to reimbursement to this technology within health systems, you're actually creating an incentive so that private companies participate. But then you have the monitoring component, and that's where we believe that there can be a role for these regulatory bodies Mm -hmm. to provide, if not the data centers themselves, at least clear Mm -hmm. protocols on how that data is collected. One of the big issues we've heard, particularly in low and middle-income countries during COVID was precisely the fact that people felt that their data sovereignty was violated Mm -hmm. in many times. And today it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. The lack of oversight is leading to many companies stepping in, especially into less mature markets, and uh, extracting data and building tremendous data sets. So I would say that having this regulatory approach can actually be a step forward. Right now, we're seeing Europe trying to create the EU Act around AI, which can be an interesting opportunity. But we see that if you become too specific, once again, technology overrides you. They were finishing up the EU Act and all of wow. a sudden Gen AI, Generative AI came up uh, as the big thing with ChatGPT, and all of a sudden, oh, how do we deal with that? It's best, in my opinion, having switched now for policymaker into this field to really keep legislation as simple as possible and then have a, a nimble regulatory body that can adapt to the technology and keep up. And that, I think, is one of the greatest challenges we have. And why do we need to do this? We think about AI sometimes, we think about robot, all of the amazing things that we see on sci-fi movies. But if, if you think about it, the first thing we'll, uh, AI could do is help with waiting lists and managing basic administrative staff, yeah. uh, actions and tasks. That can already be done today. Patients, when they go into a a GP's office, into their family doctor's office, 70% of the time, they're looking at the back of the screen while the doctor's typing away. Using AI, we can actually take away the computer and bring the doctor closer to the patient. So we can actually use technology to design health systems to be more human-central, to be more focused on compassion. But it has to be from design. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge, is making sure that we have people that understand that we don't adopt technology just because it's... It's the new... Shining object in the yeah. room, is because it can actually lead to better health outcomes, yeah. to better quality of life for for patients, but also for the health workers, which yeah. now are pretty.
1: And I would, I would, I mean, you give some examples, and I, I would add to that. I mean, the I would argue that in many ways AI is kind of made for medicine. You know, the ability to collect so much data per patient, but also across patients, so really lending itself to to that intelligence that that humans cannot in an easy way. Uh, get to, and I'm thinking about, you know, earlier, faster detection of diseases, improved understanding of patients' response to various treatment regimens. So, you know, improving the, the treatment plan you would have, thinking about drug development, making it faster, making it cheaper. I mean, there's so many tangible and and concrete ways that AI can actually help medicine and I think it's a good point that it tends to become the sci-fi you know like people are gonna take all my data and you know do all these crazy things and I think we'll get to the ethics but but I agree with you that first and foremost it's it's a huge opportunity to, to improve mm-hmm. health outcomes um, and 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 really in that sense relieve the burden for, for healthcare care systems.
0: And you were mentioning, I mean, we've been talking about precision medicine, personalized medicine for years. Now, actually, we have the tools to address those challenges. And as you were saying, and, and it's not just reactive medicine, if we will, to yeah. the face of disease, early detection of disease is critical and identifying within the population who is more prone and who can benefit the most from early diagnostics. Diagnostics, which became something that was pretty much obscure to the general mm-hmm. population before COVID, and now understand, people understand the yeah. power of diagnostic. But even something even more relevant, in my opinion, which is preventive medicine, in the sense that we can use predictive models, we can use AI working within the community to understand, bringing together different pieces to lower the of how do we do that? And you need massive amounts of data to be able to actually address those challenges. The reason why we must do this, and Europe with its aging population either does this or the systems will break, with the aging population, we're seeing a rise of demand of health systems. Every health system across the 27 countries are spending more and more each year and getting worse results. And that is a challenge that we need to face Uh, head-on. AI can be a tool to support us in that process. How do we lower the demand? How do we transform institutional health systems to more hybrid, Mm -hmm. keeping people at home, distance monitoring, moving towards being able to have uh, supervised AI mechanisms for patients to be safer at home, Mm -hmm. how we can have real clinical decision support tools uh, as we move forward for nurses, Mm -hmm. doctors, and so forth. All of that, I think, is a tremendous opportunity that's there to grab. But My concern is that the fear factor, maybe some bad actors as in any economic sector, can lead to a pushback into an an adoption of very extreme regulation that then will kill it. And that's a loss. Okay.
1: And can we talk then, can we turn then to ethics? Because I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective of kind of having that dialogue with, with the public, or like the citizens, if you will. W- what's the biggest fear? Is it the whole people will come, you know, like abuse my data for, for malicious intent? And, and well, yeah, can you speak to that?
0: Well, we have... S- found is that it varies a bit from cultural setting. Data protection is a very big issue in Europe, No doubt. Data protection from the sense of people stealing my data and uh, using my data for their own benefit is a big thing in low and middle-income countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Once again, COVID played a very important factor during that time. If you go to other uh, geographies like North America, the greatest fear is that actually there will be excessive regulation that will kill
1: Ah, interesting.
0: Access to AI and that people are more prone to want to use this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're starting to see it being already used, even without much oversight mm-hmm. in, in many contexts. So it does vary a bit, I mm-hmm. would say. But in general, the, the data is one of the big fear factors. I would say also that people are somehow afraid that the machines will get it wrong.
1: The accuracy of the prediction, exactly. kind of, yeah. And
0: the, You know, Because of costs, we will be shifting Uh. from humans to machines, and that will lead to poorer outcomes. And so the idea of keeping the human in the loop is something that I think is extremely important. And ensuring that we monitor. And um, that's why we advocate at Healthy, that all of the different regulatory bodies around the world need to work as part of this network that we're trying to create. Because as they become part of a network, it allows us to... Safe data sharing, for example, if there's an adverse effect associated with a specific AI tool, there can be an early warning warning system. A red flag that everybody knows so that each country can act accordingly to potentially stop the usage of a certain technology, for example. That that is something that I think um, is extremely important that citizens understand that that is being addressed. Because in medicine we learn, first do no harm. It doesn't mean don't take risks. That's the most important thing I think we can say. It's mitigating risk and making sure that when we decide to put a technology on the market, it's because we believe that in the overall picture, the benefits clearly overweight the risks. We're doing it for decades now with medicines without thinking about it. Because a medicine has adverse effects. Some patients will have bad side effects from uh, from those medicines. But the truth is the vast majority will benefit. That's the assessment between risk and benefit that we need to make. And we have to do the same with it.
1: And I think, I mean, you can make all the arguments that you know, that improvement or prediction, diagnosis, decision support, or which drug to give a patient or what type of treatment protocol. I mean, I think you could really make the argument that computers in many ways or the AI would actually improve uh, standard of care. Uh, but of course, I mean, it, it's, uh, that's not the public perception. And I think that's scare of like the human-less uh, treatment or like healthcare chain is, of course, something we can all relate to. But it is interesting, right? Like we sit with this feeling that humans are, are better at diagnosing, whereas I think the data is coming out by the week that that actually the, the quality of the alg- algorithms are outpacing humans. <clears throat>
0: leads to another big issue. So there are two things there. One is As soon as you approve an algorithm to be used in the market, for now at least, I think, until we're capable at least of some form of automation, of validation of of algorithms as they are applied throughout society, we may have to have a a fixated algorithm that changes after we reevaluate version two and version three, so forth, because right now I think we do not have the regulatory capacity to ensure the safety of citizens. And I think that that's an extremely important point to be made in the sense that, once again, we need to build the trust uh, with citizens. The other issue is regarding healthcare workers. My colleagues in hospitals and clinics around the world are part of the reason why people are afraid, because they are afraid. Yes. And there, and I and I understand because AI can potentially transform the way we practice report, medicine, we practice medicine yeah. Yeah. And how healthcare is delivered. It has that potential. People are fearful sometimes of delegating to machines mm-hmm. or seeing machines as assistants. But it's interesting. There was an interesting paper um, that came out on JAMA, the mm-hmm. Journal of the, Amer- the American Medical Association, last April, where they used a chatbot to speak with patients. Half of the answers were given by real doctors. The other half were AI-driven yeah. chatbots. Well. The final results is staggering because in terms of health outcomes, the machines were much better. The thing that shocked me was that in terms of empathy, the machines won. Oh, wow. And so that's interesting. Had, yeah. That's interesting. And, and it, gave, it made me reflect that, you know, I still teach at a medical school and go to medical schools around the world. In many contexts, we're still teaching patients, the doctors, the med students to become doctors that are very good at memorizing. They're very mm-hmm. good in terms of man- mechanizing their procedures. But we may we fail, I would say, mm-hmm. still on the Lie on the side of compassion and humanizing the action mm. of healthcare workers at large well w- in other words this means we've been training doctors to become machines mm. and when the machines come in yeah. machines are better at yes. being machines than human and so we need to redesign even our mm. the way we train pre yeah. healthcare workers so that we focus on the human centric. how do they become healthcare professionals mm. that work in a symbiotic environment yep. with machines. And so that needs to start quickly, yeah. and that's where something—that's something that Europe could lead because yeah. that will change <clears> the the landscape five to ten years from yeah. now if we start today.
1: It's interesting because we see it from our in- investment side that you know the imaging space has been ready to be transformed for a long time. I think that's where some of the early applications of AI has really been seen. But we see it very clearly that the uptake in the healthcare system, when the perception from the healthcare staff is that it's uh, replacing their role or challenging their role, the uptake is very slow. When it's decision support to really kind of empower and enable the healthcare worker, then the uptake is faster. So I think you're absolutely right that you know, we always try to think about that, but I think the, the system at large has to think much more about where, what is the value add of the machine, what is the value add of the human, but also remember that the human is only human, whether it's a medical doctor or a nurse or whatever. So they will also be scared. And so to empower them in their role is really one key to driving adoption of, of AI uptake in in the healthcare system. And from your
0: experience, when you you meet those kind of barriers uh, or lack of adoption, have you seen any techniques to kind of overcome that or creating incentives within the system?
1: I think it's very tricky. I think we really try actually in our analysis before we look to invest to say, if that's going to be a roadblock, sorry, we're going to avoid those because I think we've seen over and over again, I mean, we talk about healthcare systems and think we all know that they need to transform. You were talking about reduced productivity. I mean, that's not the topic of this conversation, but I think we've seen over and over again that when specifically the medical profession is not on board on the change, they are also very powerful in their profession. So to have that power against you, I think is not very conducive to kind of rapid uptake. And so we try to shy away and really instead see where does it enable the workflow of the physician because otherwise it it will not be introduced in a long time.
0: Well, that's interesting. And now, from my, you know, my more of a policy hat, I also run a network called Unite, which is a global network of parliamentarians, and members of parliaments, congresses, and senators from more than 100 countries around the world. And we face similar challenges in many countries around the world. And what we have seen is that the policies that have been most effective are truly the ones that are designed bottom up in the sense mm-hmm. that the healthcare workers and patients are incorporated in design of the implementation of these technologies and not only apply to AI to transformation in general within health systems. And I think this is a, now that we're talking about AI, we should learn from those lessons mm-hmm. in the sense that if we want to transform, make sure that everyone within the mm-hmm. ecosystem understands how they can potentially benefit from that. And if, if you have to redesign the, the system a bit to adjust to to ensure everybody's buy-in, mm-hmm. it's worth that it that yeah. invest.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because otherwise it will just be slower. But I think um, the, the the interesting part is really yeah how do you how do you get everyone's buy-in because it's not always aligned right so you have to look for those opportunities and and demonstrate with some pilots that it it works um, so tell me if you were to make a prediction for the coming you know it's always easy what is it they say that the you under you overestimate change in the short term and you underestimate change in the long term but if you take a five to ten year perspective on AI and and healthcare where where do you think we will be what what you to the point of adoption? And like, do you see areas where we will start? And do you see areas that are particularly ripe to be transformed with using AI?
0: I always get nervous when people ask me five to 10 years.
1: (laughs) And this is recorded. We're going to hold you to it. I'm all recorded
0: in my (laughs) 60s for getting it wrong. But what I can say is that at Health AI, we were actually discussing, should this be a five-year strategy? We actually shortened it to be a three-year strategy Mm -hmm. because it's such a fast-paced environment. Mm -hmm. We prefer to focus on three years where we think we understand where we're oh. going and and then adjust as we move along. I would say, you know, and our work is is flexible in the sense that we are creating a, the foundations, the pipes in the building. So no matter how AI, AI evolves, that regulatory framework needs to be there. If we're successful, I believe that we are creating a foundational piece that will help AI grow in a way that is ethical and responsible. And when we talk about responsible AI, it's AI that is... Accountable, then incorporates inclusiveness, Mm -hmm. fairness, equity. These are very basic but important elements that need to be within the AI systems from design, right, from inception throughout the AI development models until implementation. I would say that we have two potential futures ahead of us, or three. One where regulators kill it and legislators kill it in the sense that it becomes so complex that... All of the money that's being invested will be de-invested and, and every of those big investors will try to de-risk and decouple themselves from those investments because they feel that governments and health yeah. systems are not opening the door to this technology. And it's another winter for AI. That's the worst prediction I, I think we can make. And I the, the amount of investment that we see today, especially from big players, makes me hopeful that we that won't be the case. So that leads us, leads us to the other two situations. One is one in which we are unable to harness the, the positive potential and we allow a few dominating players to take mm-hmm. over and kind of killing the, the equity component and fairness component of AI, actually leading to a widening of the digital divide. And I'm thinking from a global perspective, yes. just Europe, but even within Europe, within countries, there can be a, a widening of the divide. When we talk about widening a digital divide, it's a widening of a, an economic divide, a mm-hmm. social divide. Really, those getting richer are richer, and those getting poorer are poor. Or there can be a future that I think we need all to also work towards, which is actually AI working towards narrowing the divide that currently mm-hmm. exists, helping low and middle income countries leverage that technology to leapfrog to avoid yeah. many of the mistakes we've made in the Western, so-called yeah. Western world,
1: and to compensate for some of the kind of lack of experienced staff and exactly. so on. Yeah. And, and
0: exactly, and yeah. make it re- redesign the way health is delivered yeah. that doesn't depend on these institutional disease-deliberate responsive Mm -hmm. mechanisms that have actually just led to more disease and Mm -hmm. more expense to a model that is focused on health Mm -hmm. and well-being and that those examples can inspire us in richer countries of the world to transform using technology. Mm -hmm. If we do that, perhaps, just perhaps, we might have a future where health, well-being, quality of life will be the center of all of our activity and instead of ministries of health, we'll have ministries of well-being and Mm -hmm. quality of life which I think would be the future because that would open the doors to an economy of well-being, as a few, some years ago, the, the Finnish presidency of the European Union called it. That economy of well-being, I think, would be a driver for transformation that could really raise the tide for everyone.
1: So maybe we summarize by saying that if we're mindful to avoid AI being hijacked by kind of the malicious powers, it really is an amazing tool uh, that can help transform how medicine is practiced. Agreed. Great. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thank Thank you. Thank you.